So there are a few people in this hall who have actually just gone for the, through their first silent day ever. They haven't spent a day like this before so quiet. I think it was a particularly quiet day even for myself. Maybe it's still in contrast coming back from India, but it seems very quiet today. <laughs> even with the strong blowing wind outside. Apparently, I haven't been outside all day. And that's after living for two months outside in India. And so today, not even going out, just seems very kind of gloomy. <laughs> I don't know if it actually was in your perception, but also had two months of sunshine in India. So it seemed very odd today, really. <laughs> sort of the gray skies and the, the blowing wind and the rain and and yet in here it seemed very still and very quiet but maybe not so much in your own minds there's a difference between the outer and the inner probably you've discovered today so so I do want to congratulate those people who did go through their first day because it is really challenging particularly for those that it's new for, to spend the whole day with oneself, facing one's own existence. And for some people, that's troublesome. It's difficult to sit with one's inner life. For others, it's not so difficult. It may be more of a relief in some way of being away from the hustle and bustle of the the daily stimulation and routine of things. But yet we have now finished one day. And I like to tell the story, particularly on the first day of a retreat, about my very, very first weekend retreat I ever did. And for me, I could only do a weekend, and that seemed like plenty. (laughs) More than that seemed like I couldn't have handled it at the time. But I remember on the first day, which so that would be like today in, of, the, of the retreat, in the morning, starting to have a very, very difficult time with myself and thinking, what did I get myself into, as I'm sure a few of you have had that thought today. And so there was this memory that I had from when I was going to uh, elementary school, to primary school, that when I was having a difficult time, all I had to do was run to the bathroom and I could hide out there because nobody would disturb me. So I could just say to the teacher, I just need to go to the bathroom and I could get out of the class and hide out there. And I'd feel really safe and really alone and like, okay, I put that all aside and now I can breathe. So on the retreat, I thought, okay, well, it's really difficult. I'll just run to the bathroom and I can really take a break there. So I remember actually going into the bathroom and then standing there (laughs) and thinking, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still with my own mind. And it's really my own mind that I want to get away from. It's not the sort of the environment or the teacher or the, the classmates or what's going on around me really my own mind and I remember that was my first insight because this is called insight meditation 
And so insights are supposed to arise for us. And that was my first insight, was that it didn't matter where I was because I wasn't going to get away from myself. And it was myself that I wanted to find an escape from. So perhaps we can, we know that one for ourselves that we really do at some point have to face our own existence because where are we going to go? Where can we run to? Where can we escape to? Unless we really face where the real pain is arising from. So today, tonight, I would like to talk about what's classically called the hindrances. That's just a title that we use which points to five difficult mind states that usually arise for us, particularly when we start our retreats or meditation practice. And these five difficult mind states are called hindrances because if they're not seen clearly and they are identified with as some kind of hindrance, they will then block our meditation practice. They'll block our ability to see clearly into our own experience. So these are only hindrances if they're not seen clearly. Otherwise, they're just patterns of the mind, strong forces of the mind that come and they go. And so I'd like to talk about these five difficult mind states as a way to bring awareness to these particular patterns of mind at this point so that we can really recognize them for what they are and not allow them to be obstacles in our practice. So the five difficult mind states that are classically referred to that need attention is the first one is called sense desire or desire. Another way of saying it is the wanting mind, the mind that wants something other than what it's got, something other than what is going on. The wanting mind, that which pulls us away from our present experience. The second difficult mind state is the opposite force, which is the aversion or resistance or anger to experience or the not wanting mind. I don't want that. I don't like it. I don't want this to be happening. (laughs) And that force that runs through that is in resistance. It's like going forward with the brakes on. You know that experience? (laughs) Moving forward but having the brakes on. You don't want to go too fast or too quickly or maybe not at all in that direction. So first is the desire, the sense desire. The second is the opposite, which is the aversion. The third one that arises strongly for us, particularly coming out of of stimulation and busyness in our life, is sleepiness, sleepiness or dullness. And I actually wondered whether I was talking about this tonight for that one particularly because I saw so many people nodding and bobbing today. It was really like you know, corks on a sea. It's just <laughs> so much nodding. But then I, then I thought, well, if there really is any truth to some transmission that the teacher projects when they're sitting up front, I thought, well, maybe it's my fault <laughs> because I'm still feeling some jet lag from my trip. And so sometimes sitting up here, I can just feel that sinking mind, just sinking and, and almost 
bobbing myself and I thought, well, maybe I'm just projecting that out to everybody. And so people are just viewing my own energy. But I don't know if there's any truth to that sort of thing. But anyhow, it was very much, very much in the energetic field today, I noticed. So sleepiness, dullness, another strong pattern that runs through the mind. The fourth one is restlessness. Again, the opposite. Restlessness when there's high energy, lots of aroused energy in the mind and body. And the fifth one is doubt. The waves of doubt that can actually obstruct our practice because we get so identified with the mind state of doubt. There's a simile or an image that's used to kind of uh, point to how each one of these operate or move through the mind. If we imagine a clear pond, a clear pond, and somebody pours beautiful dyes into the pond, and then we start to get entranced by the colors of the dye, and we don't see anymore the clarity and the, the, the depth of the pond itself. This would be sense desire, getting pulled into sense desire. We get entranced by the dye rather than the clarity and the beauty of the water so that we see into the depths. The aversion, the movement of aversion would be like boiling hot water or, or analogy that I've seen in New Zealand of the boiling hot mud pools just bubbling and bubbling and they're turbulent and disturbing and hot. And that's how, how anger and aversion is in the mind so that the water is, again, not clear. We can't see to the depth. We can't see the clarity. But this bubbling heat, disturbing turbulence, the sleepiness, or what's also called classically as sloth and torpor, I love, isn't that beautiful? It's really sloth and torpor. It's like if the pond had thick layers of weeds and algae on its surface, and it was just too thick to see the water, or again, to the depths of the pond. That's how sloth is, or sleepiness. It's just this thick weeds <laughs> in the mind. <laughs> can't really, there's no clarity, we can't see through. And restlessness is like when there's a strong wind blowing over the surface of the pond. And so the pond surface is just rippled. And again, it, it, it's so, the ripples are so dense that we can't see. That's all we see are the ripples. Can't see the depths of the pond. And the doubt would be as if something came and stirred the mud from the bottom of the pond and the mud just started going all through the water so the water was very murky. That's kind of how doubt is. It's very cloudy. We can't see anything but just sort of this murkiness. And that's what doubt does to the mind. Getting caught in any of these mind states makes it difficult to see more clearly into the mind and into the heart because we're getting caught in these mind states themselves. But they're only a problem when we get identified. 
Otherwise, it might be possible just to see these as the landscape of the mind, just the changing landscape of the mind, coming and going, nothing that we have to get that concerned about if we can see it for what it really is. But we do need to identify these five strong mind states because it's very easy to judge ourselves, to blame ourselves, think that we're doing something wrong in the meditation and that we have to get rid of these before we can actually do our meditation. We can think so easily that our experience that we're having should be different than it is because I'm feeling sleepy or I'm feeling agitated, I'm feeling averse, I'm feeling like I want something else to be happening. And what happens is that our ideas of meditation, our ideas of what should be happening in our meditation conflict with the actuality, with our present reality. And it's just that the ideas that we're bringing to our practice, because actually these particular mind states and experiences can be easily incorporated into the meditation. Rather than becoming obstacles to the meditation, they actually become the objects of our meditation. They become that which we pay attention to, become aware of, acknowledge, and investigate, and to see into their nature, see what they really are. See, perhaps, that they have an impersonal quality. I don't have to identify with it. I don't have to get caught up with it and say, this should not be happening. But rather, we see it's a wave of sleepiness or a wave of restlessness, a wave of doubt. We can see that they, these experiences change. They come, they go. They're transient like all experiences. We don't have to be so bothered. We learn that we don't have to react to these mind states or do we need to try to get rid of them, but rather all we need to do is just change our relationship to experience. And this is really a key point to all of which we will be doing here over this time. We don't have to get rid of anything. We don't have to try to change or alter or manipulate or try to get rid of any experience, but rather we're just changing our relationship to what arises in our experience so that we're no longer in reactivity. We're no longer caught in our likes and our dislikes, pushing and pulling, manipulating our experience to our own preferences, but rather finding a way to embrace to allow all experience to come and to allow it to go. There's not very much that we have to do. So that's really the key, is to to notice how we are in this reaction to what's happening and to see if there's a way that we can open to it, to embrace it. Because as we do that and we learn to work with these difficulties within our own minds, we learn to work with them skillfully, they start to occur less and less. And when they do occur, we're not so bothered. Just not bothered by it anymore because we see it's just the passing show, just the changing show. 
So the key really is in the mindfulness. It's in the willingness to pay attention to what is happening so that we can see our relationship to what's happening. We can see more clearly whether we're in reactivity or whether there is an ability to be somewhat equanimous in relationship to what's arising. As we become more attentive, we're able to be somewhat mindful, what grows is the element of interest. Rather than being reactive to our experience, we actually start to become more interested. Say, well, what is this? How does anger arise in my mind? How does greed or desire arise? What is this sleepiness? What's it related to? What can I learn from it? And we really can start a whole different kind of exploration into our experience, which can lead to very deep self-understanding and reflection. We learn to make friends with our experience. This is so, this is really quite radical to be friendly with what arises within our minds, with our bodies. To not, to not be in reaction. To not have anger or hatred towards ourselves, towards our own minds, towards our own bodies. But to actually feel a friendliness an ease, uh, uh, a tolerance with all that arises within ourselves. So we say to feel what is happening, feel the experience within ourselves and be with it without the identified involvement, to see it all as the passing show, just a passing show. I'd like to take each one of these five difficult mind states and talk a little bit about them so that we can clearly identify each one and know it well when it arises within our own mind. The first one is the wanting mind or what's called sense desire. And this is the feeling of being led towards something that is pleasurable. It's actually, we can experience it energetically in our bodies as being pulled or sometimes we feel like we're toppling forward because it often comes from an idea, some kind of attraction where we are just pulled and we can fall over in our experience because we're not balanced, we're not centered. It's the mind-seeking pleasurable experiences because we're not content with where we're at. We want to, or we think that we can find fulfillment somewhere else. And perhaps you have seen that arise today. You know, I don't know for some people, maybe some people have had the thought that they'd rather be anywhere but here. Anywhere on earth. Like, why did I decide to come on a week-long meditation retreat? What was I thinking? <laughs> and then that whole kind of uh, pull to fantasize about all the other places you could possibly be today. You know, don't know, probably there, for as many minds as there are in here, there's as many different fantasies for where you would rather be today. 
you know, or what you what kind of weather you would have liked today. You know, maybe you didn't feel you could go outside in this in this in this kind of wind and rain, and and you were feeling stuck inside. If only I could be outside. If the sun was shining. If it was a warmer day. That that pull towards something that is more pleasurable. Maybe instead of doing the walking periods and maybe, you know, not either really being able to relate to it or feeling that it's boring or not very satisfying in some way, you found yourself being pulled to the tea pot, to the tea urn. (laughs) And maybe you've had more cups of tea today than you've had in (laughs) six months. You know, just something that seemed a bit more pleasurable than just doing some walking back and forth, back and forth, or even sitting and and trying to make contact with the breath. Just a breath, like a breath, how boring. Why why would I find anything interesting or satisfying with a breath, you know? And so then the mind goes off and fantasizes about some other things. This is the movement of desire. And we can feel it very energetically, both in the mind, when the mind starts to be pulled, and it's a tightening, a narrowing towards something particular, some particular object or idea that's going to bring some satisfaction. And we feel that energetic tightness, so we can feel the body kind of contracting towards this wanting, if I could only have that. When we're outside of the retreat, we may be aware of big desires that arise in our mind. You know, desires for the, a perfect, or a particular kind of job or, or a place to live or a relationship or a car or money or whatever it is. We feel that desire pulling us towards those things. But here on the retreat, our world shrinks a bit. You know, and, and as the world shrinks, the mind starts to shrink a bit as well. And so the desire may take on different forms. It may be the desire for the bell to ring at the end of a sitting. This is a strong desire that we can watch. You know, when is that bell going to ring? I really want that bell to ring. And we can feel that, 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 that craving for that end of that sitting. And it can feel like the biggest desire we've ever felt just for that, to hear that bell. Or for lunch, which is the big highlight of the day, the biggest highlight of the day. <laughs> you know, we might start thinking about it at 10.30 in the morning, like, oh, when's, how many more hours to lunch, you know? So then the desire starts to rise for that. So we might find our, our desires start to be a bit more immediate, and yet the, 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 the feeling can be quite strong, quite intense inside of us. So have you noticed this today? Have you noticed this wanting to have something that you don't have or to be somewhere that you're not or have some different experience in your meditation than you're having? This is the desire, the desire for something pleasurable because what, what we're experiencing may not be very pleasurable or satisfactory. It's important to point out, though, that in talking about desire, that the problem is not the pleasure. 
it's not that we're not supposed to feel anything pleasurable or have pleasurable experiences. That would be a real shame. And I think that sometimes even Buddhism gets uh, uh, defined as sort of a uh, renunciation or of, of pleasure or, se- or sensual pleasure in the world. You know, that we have to be quite ascetic in our life in some way. But the pleasure is not the problem. The problem is really the holding on, the attachment, the craving on to experience that takes us away from where we are right now. So we're not able to actually start to feel in and to settle in to the fulfillment that is already here for us in every experience, whether it has a pleasurable quality or not. But that there, as we deepen into our, our meditation, we start to touch something that is actually quite satisfying that runs through all experience because we're present, we're connected, we're intimate with what's happening. We're not in reactivity. And when we're not in reactivity, this is what brings a fulfillment, a satisfaction in our moment-to-moment experience. The Buddha says, What is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. It's really quite significant that as one deepens into wisdom and understanding, what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. Because one sees, one understands that the striving is what brings about the pain that desire, the movement away from our experience is what brings pain. So we no longer do it. So when we notice desire arising in our experience, there's a few antidotes, there's a few things that we can do to work with this. The first thing, of course, is to label it. Labeling can be very helpful, and just to make a note, say, okay, this is the movement of desire. This is the movement of wanting. So that we really begin to acknowledge and identify this in our, in our mind and our body. This is it. This is that energe- energetic pull that's taking me away from my experience. And then it can be helpful to reflect on the impermanence to reflect on impermanence. And we might ask ourselves the question, how much will fulfilling this desire now matter tomorrow? Or how much will fulfilling this desire now matter in six months or at the end of my life? Like we might say, even the desire to leave the retreat today. don't know if people have had that desire. But how much is that really going to make a difference? You know, if we're just kind of running away or or escaping one more time from our own experience, how much is that really going to make a difference? Mm -hmm. Or if we really need to go for that cup of tea one more time, is that really going to make a difference? No. 
So reflecting on the impermanence might help us see that this isn't going to last. It probably is going to pass, just like all things pass. I remember when I was on a three-month retreat in my earlier years, and, and one craving, I had this strange to talk about it now, but one craving that kept arising for me was a craving for Reese's peanut butter cups. Do you know Reese's peanut butter cups? <laughs> They're, you know, thin milk chocolate on the outside with <laughs> creamy peanut butter in the center. <laughs> and I would just keep having this desire for that. And I remember um, at some point getting some chocolate. Somebody, sometimes people will leave little chocolate on pillows and things like that in three-month courses. And I remember getting some chocolate, and because I was doing very mindful eating and I was moving very slow, I remember thinking, ah, piece of chocolate. Now I can really appreciate this piece of chocolate. And I remember starting to really take this piece of chocolate and chewing it really mindfully. And actually, what happened is that it wasn't that satisfying. (laughs) It just, being that mindful, I started just feeling all kind of, you know, the gooiness and the stickiness and the overly sugar taste. And it just wasn't what my mind was imagining it to be. And so it was really quite insightful in a way that the way that the mind fantasizes something to be isn't so always the reality. That once we get that thing, it may not actually give us that fulfillment that we thought it was going to, to give us. And I think that often we can see this happening again and again in our lives. It's also helpful with the arising of desire to practice moderation in relationship to the object of our desire. So, for example, if we're really craving the end of a sitting, we're really craving and craving, I'm not sure this actually fits with moderation, but it's, it's, a, it's a way, a moder- I see moderation as a way of bringing some restraint so that we're not just indulging in our desires, we're not just feeding our desire. So for craving the end of the sitting, what might be helpful is to actually keep sitting after the bell. You know, rather than just reacting or, or as soon as the bell rings, just, ah. It's like, okay, just watch the desire. Just sort of watch the desire change by itself. Okay, the bell rang and just sitting and watching what happens in the body so that we're not indulging in that. We're using some restraint in that reaction. Or if we are really craving food, craving lunch, rather than rushing up to the front of the lunch line, maybe taking some moderation standing at the back of the lunch line and watching what happens when you're not just indulging in that desire, standing in the back. One time what I did, because I had a strong craving that would come up for food for the meal time, as a, as a great distraction from my practice, I decided to ring the lunch bell. And this is at the Insight Meditation Society, which is a very, very large center, so the, the bell had to be rung all over the building, which took about 10 minutes. So it really did <laughs> delay my gratification for the food. 
So there are different ways that we can work with these strong cravings so that we're not just giving into them. Maybe drinking tea after two sittings instead of drinking tea after every sitting. You know, just starting to curb, curb back. Seeing that these are just waves of desire, we don't have to indulge in these. We can see that they come and see that they go. So that's desire. Another strong mind state that comes is aversion. And I want to point out too that some people seem to have stronger tendencies towards desire in the mind and some people seem to have stronger tendencies towards aversion. It seems that there's different psychological types. So you may relate to one more than you relate to the other. Or sometimes you may find that you have strong tendencies towards both. But for myself, I relate strongly to this one, to aversion. And I see in myself that this is really more where my mind inclines. And so I could probably give a whole Dharma talk on this one. (laughs) But again, I'll just just keep it somewhat brief. In the same way that the desire needs to be recognized, so does the aversion in the mind, which is the not wanting mind. It's a similar force of craving. It's it's the same force of the craving, of the wanting, but in this way it's the not wanting, craving for something other. It takes the form of anger or hatred, ill will. It takes the form of judging, our experience or others' experiences, condemning. It even takes the shape of fear, fear which is strong resistance to the experience that's arising, or it can take the shape of boredom. Boredom, because it's boredom is another way that we don't like our experience and we cut off. It's a way of sometimes going, in some way going a bit numb because we don't like what's happening. We can experience aversion in the mind, usually through the tone. It can be a harsh tone. We can hear the voice in the mind that is somewhat harsh and irritating, critical, sharp in the mind. And we can feel the aversion in the body because we can feel it kind of again as a contraction or a tightening. And when we're quite sensitive to our experience, we can see that when we're in resistance, when we're pushing experience away, we actually have to tighten the muscles. We actually have to tighten the body in a real way to push the experience away. It's a closing off, a shutting down of what's happening within ourselves. And this is often quite painful because we're closing our heart to ourselves and to all of life around us. And this aversion colors everything that we see. It becomes a filter over the mind that everywhere we look, we don't like, we're in resistance, we don't want. And it can be quite a stuck mind state that we can get into where it's as if we have these glasses on that just color everything and it covers it with dislike and distaste. But yet, all it is, again, is just a 
filter over the mind, a wave over the mind, and if it's seen clearly, we do not have to be disturbed by it. We really don't. Aversion needs to be investigated because it can be so destructive and so painful. We can ask ourselves the question, what are we really angry with? What are we really hating? What is it? I remember in my early days of meditation, I often was sitting with aversion. It was a very, very predominant mind state for me. And it would manifest as a bad mood. I would just find myself in a bad mood, particularly when I would go on retreats, because the aversive state would kind of settle into the mind and I would just be in a bad mood. But I didn't know what I was in a bad mood about. It didn't seem to have a particular object. I would just be somewhat aversive. And this would get projected out. It would get, as, as, as I said before, it sort of color everything. And I remember, too, in these, I did quite a few three-month retreats at IMS, Insight Meditation Society, on the east coast of America in my early days of practice. And I remember there were also a number of friends with me in those early days, close friends that I knew when I was living in California. But yet, because I was in such a bad mood, this would get projected out to my friends, and I, wouldn't, I, would, I would find myself not liking my friends and wondering why they were my friends. And why, why do I, and then they would do things that would really irritate me. You know, just even the way they would walk or the way that they would dress or the way they'd um, uh, meditate, where they were sitting in the meditation hall, if they'd sit very straight and very quiet, I'd get really angry at them. <laughs> and it would just get projected out. And I didn't understand. I didn't understand what it was until I started really investigating, what is this? What am I hating? What am I angry with? And what I started to see was that it was actually just a mood itself. It didn't have any specific object to it. But I was quite identified with it, quite involved with it, and then then personalizing it, making myself wrong, Getting angry at myself, would just, which would just reinforce the whole mind state, and it would just solidify. But yet it didn't actually have a particular object, except the, the delusion, the, the, the delusion of not seeing it for what it was. One time, when I was sitting with this bad mood, And I was asking myself, what am I really hating? What am I really feeling averse towards? And I turned the attention into the body to really feel my body. And what I found was that there was just a pain in my side that I wasn't aware of. And it was a niggly pain that was quite strong. And I realized that that's actually why I was in a bad mood. Because I had that sensation that I didn't want to feel. And so I was going into the mind and trying to get away from it, projecting into some kind of mind state. And this split, this way that I was splitting off from my actual experience, was causing some agitation and aversion. And as soon as I turned my attention towards the sensation and really felt it, there was a way that I settled back into a a sense of wholeness 
and the agitation went away. And so interesting to have experiences like this because it really drew me more and more into my actual experience at a sensation level to see what is it that's going on so that I don't split off from it, I don't react to it. When we really look closely, we can see that what we don't like are the unpleasant sensations, whether the sensations are at an emotional level, a feeling level, a a physical level, at the mental level. We don't like the sensations. And so the aversion is a reaction to this unpleasantness. We get angry at it. And we personalize it and turn it towards ourselves that we're getting angry, that we're in reaction. And then we can make ourselves wrong, we can feel bad, we feel guilty, we feel shameful, that we're in reaction, that we feel anger, that we feel hatred. And then we can feel aversion towards the anger. I don't like this aversion, I don't like this mind state. And then we can get angry at the mind state. And then if it's not seen clearly, then we can get at another layer of anger onto that, to the point where we find ourselves in a very tight ball of contraction. And so in working with that, we have to start at the very top layer and start peeling back the layers of aversion to see where is that beginning and find a way of starting to melt and soften that reaction. In spiritual circles, anger is considered to be quite bad. So when we have aversion or anger or hatred that arises, we can easily attack ourselves and make ourselves wrong. Or we can suppress it and withdraw and pretend that it's not there. But it's very important to see if we can open to this, to look at our relationship to this aversion, to this anger, and to ask ourselves, can we hold it with an open heart? Can we hold this difficult mind state with an open heart? And this is so crucial because if we can break this link between the painful conditions within ourselves and the outer conditions and our reactive thought to those conditions, there's some hope in liberating ourselves from this ongoing experience of suffering. We can start to see the difference between the initial condition and our reaction to it. And this is something that I'll be talking about again and again through the retreat. It's so critical in the way that we can release ourselves from our pain. And so in feeling aversion, of course, the, one of the first antidote is to label it, to say, yes, this is aversion, to know it, to feel it, to identify it in the body and the mind. And then the first practice is to see if we can change the tone of the voice that's coming through the mind, to change the tone, see if we can change it from one of harshness or criticalness to one of gentleness and kindness. Can we do that? Can we, can we speak more kindly to ourselves? 
in noticing how it is that we are talking to ourselves. If we're angry at ourselves, perhaps it might be useful to reflect on this fact that I deserve to be treated with kindness. I deserve kindness. I deserve kindness from myself. I deserve kindness from others. And this is really the movement of metta, or the movement of loving kindness towards ourselves. In this recognition that I deserve to be happy, as all beings want to be happy, so do I want to be happy. And to take this reflection in deeply so that perhaps we can, we can interfere, interrupt that movement of, of anger and hatred towards ourselves by really reflecting on our our deep desire for happiness. And when we find ourselves in aversion on a retreat or outside of retreat, it can be very helpful to allow the mind to incline towards something that is more beautiful. So for example, here on the retreat, if you find yourself going again and again towards the difficult, like it feels painful in my body, it's hard to sit, I just want to sleep, I don't really want to be here, and the mind is going there again and again, that really is a signal to change the conditions and go towards something that is beautiful. Go out into the, the pastures, go out into the green grass, go to the beautiful big trees, go into the garden, go where the heart can be uplifted. And that's something that we really can do for ourselves when we find the mind is falling into too much difficulty. So desire and aversion. I'll go through the next three a little bit more quickly because there's actually quite a lot to say about all of these. The third one is the sloth and torpor or the sleepiness. And I think a number of you know what this is. (laughs) It's the laziness or the dullness, the sleepiness, the lack of vitality. And this can also be boredom. You know, just there's no vitality there. There's no interest. There's no um, energy to turn the mind towards the experience. It's just listless. And it's very easy to identify with and believe in and think that there's nothing we can do except fall asleep or go to sleep or stop the practice. We just say to ourselves, I'm so tired I can't meditate. I'm so tired I need to sleep. There's just no energy to bring the attention back. There's three possibilities of what can be happening here. One, and, of, and it's not to be discounted, is that there actually may need to be a genuine need for sleep. You may have pushed yourself so much in your lives, you may be so run down and exhausted from what's been going on, either physically or emotionally, that you really do need to rest. And that does need to be acknowledged and recognized because there's no point in pushing if the body is really calling out for some rest. It may be that, or it may be that there's a strong habit or tendency of mind to fall into dullness. Just a habit 
a, a conditioned habit that's happened over time. So you just fall into a state of, of, of low vitality. Or what might be happening and sometimes happens on retreats is that the sleepiness or the dullness is actually some resistance to something that wants to be revealed in the psyche. And if we're able to stay with it and not give in to the sleepiness, we might discover an underlying fear or an underlying difficulty that hasn't been recognized before. Maybe some loneliness or sorrow or grief or some loss that we haven't acknowledged. Something that has to be dealt with. And sometimes first this can come about through some resistance that arises, that manifests through sleepiness. And so we really do need to pay attention to what is behind the sleepiness so that we can respond well. We can respond skillfully to what's needed. And so in working with the sleepiness and the dullness, the primary antidote is to arouse energy, is to take some steps to arouse some energy so that we can actually look at the mind state clearly to see what's needed. I talked a little bit today about arousing energy, which are some of the initial steps, which is to open the eyes, to sit up straight. One thing that can help is to put the hands on top of the head, which helps to straighten the body and open the eyes, brings more energy. Um, to, To stand up, take deeper breaths, all of that does help to bring about more vitality outside of the meditation hall to do some fast walking, to go out into the the wind, the rain, to get wet, to get cold. All of that arouses energy. But mindfulness itself, just the mere intention to be present, to be awake, brings vitality, brings wakefulness. Having that intention itself is already a way that we are Uh, saying we're willing to pay attention, we're willing to look and see, to see what can be discovered. Sleepiness does not need to be an obstacle to our meditation. It can very much be brought right into the meditation itself. One time when I was doing an intensive retreat with uh, a Burmese Sayadaw named uh, Sayadaw Upandita, uh, who is, has a reputation in the, in the meditative fields of being rather um, ruthless <laughs> and, and, and strict in his, uh, in his way of teaching. He was encouraging all of us to uh, only get four hours of sleep. That was part of the package, was to meditate 20 hours and to sleep four hours. And when we would ask him, well, what do we do with the fact that we're pretty much sleeping most of the day, you know, even though we're upright, we're just sort of falling asleep. He said, this is not a problem, not to worry about it. It's more important to be upright and to have the intention towards wakefulness than to actually be lying down in a full sleep um, posture. 
So through this um, 16-day retreat or this 20-day retreat, I had a lot of experience. I got a lot of experience of what it's like to actually sit up and to deal with sleepiness. And I found that actually being in a more sleepy state can be very, very sweet. There can be a real sweetness to it. It's just to feel that sleepiness, but to be quite awake in it and to be in touch with the breathing and breathing very rhythmically and, and very quietly and just feeling that energy as it's moving through the body. Very, very sweet. And it completely cut through my resistance towards uh, sleepiness in the meditation. Now it's just another movement of the energy, another quality of the energy as it moves through. So sleepiness. The other difficult mind state is one of restlessness. So sometimes people who are feeling quite dull, some people feel quite dull. Other, other character types have more of a restless energy. And there can be a lot of energy moving through the body. Mm-hmm. In the same way, we just name this, we label this, a restlessness moving. There's a lot of restlessness, a lot of energy moving through the body. Restlessness is a, is, a, is, is, a, is a complex of thoughts and feelings and sensations. We can experience it as agitation, anxiety, worry. It's experienced both in the mind, as the mind being scattered and un- unfocused, where the mind can't settle on a particular object, so the mind is just restless, going all over from here to there. The mind is unable to rest. And sometimes we can find ourselves going over the same scenario again and again and again for hours. This is the restless mind, a mind that can't really settle. We can also feel that in the body. There's lots of energy moving through the body. And it can feel sometimes quite unpleasant, lots of thoughts moving. It's a whole complex of energy. And so this also needs to be identified and named as restlessness. And the way we work with that, the best thing that we can do for restless energy is to really open the awareness to feel the whole complex that's moving through the mind and body. So it's kind of a wide awareness, an open awareness, so that we're not trying to get back to the breath necessarily, but we just feel the whole movement. It said that cows are happy in a wide pasture rather than a narrow pasture. So we open out the pasture so that, so that the body doesn't feel like it's in a pressure cooker, doesn't feel so confined. And in that way, it might be possible to see the transitory nature of this energy, that it's not so solid, it's not so fixed. And with the breath, as we breathe easily, it can help to steady the restlessness in this so that we open the awareness and breathe in a steady way and it can bring about some calm and relaxation in that. And the last one is doubt, is the mind state of doubt. And it said this is the most powerful one of all because it can actually stop our practice. 
if we really identify and believe these thoughts of doubt that move through the mind, we can just stop, say, this isn't for me, and walk out, and that's the end. We can doubt ourselves, doubt our ability to practice, doubt that we can do this. We can doubt the teachers, doubt the tradition, doubt the situation. We can bring doubt to anything. And if we believe in it, it can absolutely be debilitating. We might say to ourselves that, I don't know why I ever decided to do this. It's too hard. I can't do it. I don't have the resources. I shouldn't be here. This is really for other people. Other people are really good practitioners, but I'm never going to get it. No. This is too hard. I don't know why I chose the Buddhist tradition. I really should have done Sufi dancing. It would have been a lot better. No. And we need to see that these are thoughts. These, again, are waves moving through the mind that don't necessarily have to be believed in but we can see them come and we can see them go. And yet there is some doubt that is useful and we have to point this out because it's called great doubt and this is the doubt that leads to inquiry. It really leads to some deep questioning. We might say, is this really the right technique for me? Is this the one I should be doing? Or the advice that the teacher is giving me isn't actually that good for me. You know, to bring some doubt, bring some questioning to what it is that we're doing. But the important thing is the ability to discriminate between what's called little doubt and great doubt so that we know which one we should listen to, which one we should believe in. Because otherwise, the little doubts that run through the mind about ourselves, about the teachers, the teachings, all that, can really be... a a huge interference for our practice. So in working with doubt, we really do need to be mindful of its presence, to see it as a thought, to see doubt as a thought rather than believing in it as a mind state. And we need to identify whether it's useful or whether it's not useful. It's a very good question to ask ourselves. Is it useful or is it not useful? And with doubt, it can be very helpful just to anchor ourselves back into the present moment with firmness and continuity. Just come back. Just come back, because it can really cut through the confusing thoughts in the mind. And for those of you who are fairly new to the practice, who haven't maybe even done a week retreat before, It might be helpful just to see this, too, as an experiment. You know, if doubts come up and you're uncertain about whether this is for you, whether you should be here, or what's going on here, you could think, okay, for this week I'm going to try it out, and I'm going to do it wholeheartedly, 100%, and see what happens. And then at the end of the week, then you can evaluate that in a more clear way with more information about what you're, what you're actually doing. So it might be helpful just to put the doubts aside and just to do the practice. So these are the five difficult mind states. 
And as I said in the beginning, they're not hindrances to our practice if we can see them for what they are. Just to see them for what they are. Strong, impersonal forces of the mind that come and they go. They're transitory like all experiences. You might say they're like waves on the ocean, but they're not different than the ocean itself. Just waves on top of the ocean, just like all experiences of life. And yet the ocean itself has great vastness and great depth when we're not so fixated on the waves themselves. Rather than personalizing these mind states, as this is my tiredness, I am so sleepy and I can't do the practice. It's just tiredness coming, tiredness going. Don't have to personalize it. When we feel strong waves of anger, aversion in the mind, rather than saying it's my anger, I am really an angry person and I'm so caught up in my anger, it's just aversion moving through the mind, anger coming, anger going don't have to get so identified. The, the self does not have to get so caught up in it when we can bring this attitude, this relationship. We just get out of the way, not suppressing, not judging, not blaming, not getting rid of anything, but just letting experience flow through, seeing it all as the changing landscape of our mind. And when we're not reacting in this way, these strong mind states begin to quiet down. They lose their power. They lose their force. When we're not giving them food, when we're not feeding them, when we're not indulging in them, they start to lose their power and they they die away on their own. And then we're not so bothered anymore by these difficulties. As Ram Das, the great uh, American teacher, has said, it's all grist for the mill. Just all grist for the mill. Or as Kalu Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master, said, it's all manure for Bodhi. Bodhi is the tree, the great tree the Buddha sat under for his enlightenment. So perhaps we can bring that attitude to our practice over these days now, that it's just all manure (laughs) for Bodhi. Let's just sit quietly for a few minutes.
may all beings live with an open heart. May all beings live with an open mind. May all beings know kindness towards all things that arise. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.